ready to worship the Lord. I like this service. Everybody's awake. 
the other one's a little early. Some of them are they're still coming in. You know what I'm saying? So it's good to have you guys with us. Uh, good to have those of you that are with us online. We appreciate that. And uh, please, as I said, get your slippers off the table. Get your coffee cup off to the side. Get up. We're going to worship together. So uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for being with us uh, in the room. Thanks for being with us online. Uh, we've got some people that are going to be available for prayer here. If you'd like prayer during the service, uh, they'll be at the back under the prayer signs. And uh, those of you that are online, you can uh, text in or send in your uh, prayer requests that way as well. And uh, we want to be able to have the opportunity to pray with you. So thanks for being a part of all of this. We're going to celebrate just what we sang about, that God is good. Uh, not that he's, uh, you know, has bad days or gets grumpy or any of that stuff. That God is good. That's just, that's his nature. That's who he is. He can't be other than who he is. And we're going to celebrate that in the midst of the craziness of the world we live in. So, Father, we just say thank you for who you are, for the goodness of who you are. You don't just do good things. I mean, everybody at some point, even the bad people at some point, did a good thing. It's not that you do good things. You are good. And because you are good, then everything that rolls out of you is a good thing. Every word that comes out of you is a good word. It's because you are good. And so this morning, God, we just want to celebrate the reality of you being good. We want to celebrate the reality of what it means to be loved by somebody who is good. And so, God, we thank you for who you are. We take this opportunity to celebrate and to worship together. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's sing together. time we get to raise our hands, put them up as close to God we can. Let's try that again.
easy to think that we have control. It's easy to think that we have all the control that we need. But we know God's got control. Amen? And things are a lot better when he has control over us, right?
And sometimes when he doesn't show up early, we start getting pretty nervous, don't we? Like, oh, God, we got a deadline here. <laughs> got a deadline. And God's going, yeah, I know. <laughs> don't worry about it. I'll be there. Never early, but he's never late. And uh, sometimes it's, it's hard to have that faith. It's hard to have that faith to believe that he's not going to be late when he hasn't been early. Hmm? Isn't that just kind of part of being human? Start getting anxious, start getting a little nervous, start wondering what he's doing, where he's at, what's going on, instead of being able to trust. He's holding on to us. So, Father, I want to thank you for the fact that you are never late. You always get there when you need to be there. You're always there for us when we need you to be there. And we'll just confess, God, that sometimes when you're not early, it makes us a little bit anxious. We start getting frustrated. We start wondering what's going on. We, we see something coming, and we think it's out of control. We don't know what's going to happen. And oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. And then there you are. There you are, right when you need to be there. So, God, I pray that you would help us to back off, not be so anxious, not to be so frustrated, and to just trust that you're not going to let go of us. You are holding on to us. You're going to be there when you need to be there. And that we are safe in your hands because you're never late. So God, we just want to thank you for being who you are. We want to thank you for loving us the way you have loved us and taking care of us the way you've taken care of us. And even we want to say thank you for all the times you got in our face and ask us, what in the world are you doing? Thanks, God, for being there for us. Exactly when we needed you, exactly the way we needed you. Your name we pray. Amen. 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 Hey, well, it's almost illegal, but not quite, to be friendly. So, uh, you know, uh, look around, say hi to somebody, wave at them. I don't know, do something. Let them know you're glad they're around, you're glad they're here. <laughs>
I'm Karen, and my friend Lupe and I co-lead the Divorce Care Program here at Parkway. Divorce Care is a Bible-based program designed to help you navigate a very difficult time in your life. We have videos, a workbook, and most importantly, a group of people who are going through the same thing so that we can support each other. Whether you're just newly separated or have been divorced for a while, this class will help you see God's love for you. Join us Saturday, September 12th from 9 to 12 to get signed in and introduced, and then every Wednesday evening from 6.30 to 8. We hope to see you. God bless. Hi, my name is Pastor Bethany. Hi, I'm Jenna. Are you looking for a community of parents to connect with? Then you should join us this fall for Thrive Parenting Class. Please hang out with me. Do you want to learn how to parent by looking at the heart of your child? There will be videos, small group discussions, and take-home activities every week. So if you want to hang out with a group of parents, then let us know by registering online. Then join us this fall. Good, I'll do it again, because if it's creepy, I don't want it to be creepy. Then nobody's going to want to come hang out with me. your mom, Bella. <laughs> She's good, though, isn't she? Yeah? Oh, come on. Give her a little credit. Yeah, yeah. Come on. She's good. Yeah. All right. All right. Oh. Hey, yeah, next Sunday, so we, I'm, I'm going to be missing the, the pork, buddy. I, I just got to tell you, I, we got to figure out how to do these big mass meal things again, because I'm missing the pork, but I don't know. Maybe I'll try to make my own and bring it to the tailgate. That's as good as I can get. This is our master chef over here. He cooks all night and makes that pork for us that we usually have at uh, Labor Day and just not going to happen this, 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 this next week. But anyway, we'll be at the fairgrounds and we've got the, the big screen thing set up and we'll watch the movie and do all of that. And uh, you heard about the popcorn, but we also have an ice cream truck. So, I mean, this is a pretty good deal. So, you know, you just bring a sandwich or a granola bar or something, and we'll give you popcorn and ice cream. So you got everything you need right there. So we're going to do that next week. And I uh, want to say thank you again to all of our volunteers, everybody that's got the attend one, serve one idea down, and uh, see a bunch of the shirts out here. We got lunch immediately following this service. I'll tell you, if you're interested in being a volunteer, this is a really good week to be interested because you get lunch for being interested. So, uh, you know, that's a, that's a good deal. So you can just walk over there and go, I'd, I'd like to be a volunteer. <laughs> uh, but we will call you if you do that. I'm just telling you, you, you know, you'll get the free lunch, but we will call you, you know. There'll be a follow-up to that whole thing. So that's what's going to happen. Hey, in the spring every year, we do this thing to, to honor all of our graduates and, the, you know, the people that are, like, growing up and moving on and, and doing all those things. And there was one of our graduates uh, that we missed. And so we've got a special video that we want you to see from one of our graduates that we missed uh, earlier in the spring. So uh, turn your attention to the screen. Hi, Parkway family. Pastor Bethany here. I have some exciting news to share with you guys today. So I need to let you know that Pastor St. John has been growing up quite a bit recently. In fact, today he's graduating. In all seriousness, Pastor St. John has been a tremendous blessing to Parkway. And although you won't see him around kids' church much anymore, you will see him around the church because he is heading up administration. Pastor St. John, thank you for your years of service in kids' ministry and beyond. We are so proud of you, and we love you bunches. This is for you. 
my first like major memory of St. John, we were at kids camp and my girls asked me, what is the Holy Spirit? And I had no idea what to tell them. So I said, Pastor St. John, I don't know you, but come tell these girls about the Holy Spirit. And he took the time to sit down with my girls and just explain to them that the Holy Spirit was their comforter, that he was our guide, that he was everything that, he, that we were looking for in this world, basically. And it was just such a, a special, special moment. And I'll never forget that. And it just really showed me his heart. And after that, it was like, I'll follow this man anywhere. <laughs> so he's very, very special and dear to us. Pastor St. John has always been kind of one of those people that you kind of think of like a, a fun uncle, kind of crazy at times, but he's also really responsible, respected, but will also be right there next to you to cause a little trouble here and there. That's what I really liked about him because it made him really personable. Okay, um, the first time I saw St. John talk up with kids, teaching kids, was during Royal Family, and all I could think of was, this man is magic. He has got exactly the perfect tones and everything to keep the kids' attention, and they all just listened to him, and it was so perfect. And then I went and helped in children's ministry, and it's the same. He is just magic. He has got a, such a wonderful way of talking to the kids and just getting down at their level, and they just love him, and it's obvious that he loves them. St. John is wonderful. We love you, St. John! Nice job. This time say, God bless you. Ready? One, two, three. God bless you! So he's our latest graduate. He's all, all grown up. So St. John, if you'd come down here, the, the kids are going to come as well. Those of you that are in first through fifth grade, you're going to connect up with Bethany, and you guys are going to be headed off to kids church and uh, i think uh, kylie you're collecting a bunch of middle school students you're headed that direction st john we've got a, uh, a gift for you um we saved a lot of money on it because i think it's a gift certificate to a restaurant and they're not open anymore so it, it didn't cost as much you know that way you know so as soon as they open up you'll get to enjoy your no I, they're they're open you just there's only half as many people there right yeah yeah something like that i'll go by myself You'll go by yourself, yeah, the way you prefer to go. Yes. <laughs> no, we just want to sincerely say thanks for all the faithful years of ministry with these kids and a bunch of other kids, and uh, we appreciate that. And um, yeah, 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 some of those, they used to be in your group, right? And so now they're, they're growing up too. But uh, now you get to do uh, administration in the middle of a pandemic. So uh, we appreciate that yeah. and keeping that all going and doing yeah. that. So thank you. We appreciate it. And just a gift from us. And uh, thanks much. Thanks much. We're going we're gonna to pray for you guys. So, Father, we thank you for each of these students. We thank you for the direction that you have for their lives. I pray, God, that you would bless them today and that they would connect with you in unique ways that would change their lives. 
I thank you, Father, for Bethany as she steps in and as she takes over the leadership in this area. And we thank you, Father, for St. John, his faithfulness, not only in the past, but his faithfulness as it extends into the future, as he continues to be a part of the team here. So thank you, God, for all of these people and pray that your blessing would rest upon them. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Go have fun. Go have fun. Cool. Hey, we are at the end of 2 Timothy. Some of you thought we would never get there, did you? Thought like this guy's going to talk about 2 Timothy forever. So uh, we're actually, uh, actually going to wrap it up today. So we're in 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting with verse 6. So if you can find a Bible or get it online or however it is that you read Scripture now, find that and we're going to read it together. Much of this letter obviously has been pretty personal. This is the last letter that Paul writes. He's writing to his son in the faith, Timothy. He's giving Timothy some very specific personal instructions. This is not instructions to a community or to a congregation, but to a very particular person that uh, is is dear to Paul. So he's giving him these these specific personal instructions. We're going to hear a lot of references to things in this portion that we're going to read. We're going to read about the names of some people, some of whom are familiar to us. Some of the names are people that we're not familiar with, and this is the only place where we have a reference to them. We're also going to hear a little update from Paul in terms of where his case is, because he's already been on trial once. We're not sure exactly what happened in that, but he said he was delivered from that. There was, there was no judgments that were made. There was nothing that happened, but he's now facing a second trial, and so we're going to get a little bit of an update from him in terms of that. Paul anticipates that this second trial is not going to end the way the first one did. The first trial that Paul had, he said that he was delivered out of the mouth of the lion is the phrase he uses. It's kind of a reference to, yeah, I could have ended up in, you know, lion food in the Colosseum. Didn't happen. I was grateful for that. But he anticipates that this is over. He says, my life is done. I'm being poured out like a drink offering over the altar. He said, I'm I'm coming to the end. Paul anticipates a very different, uh, a very different outcome for this trial than what he had at the first one. And so that's why he writes this letter. He's writing to Timothy. He's encouraging Timothy. He's trying to get Timothy refocused. He's emphasizing God's faithfulness. He's reminding Timothy, these are the things we've suffered. These are the difficulties we've been through, but God's been faithful to us in spite of all of those things. And Timothy, I need you to step up. That's why the the portion just before the one that we're reading today is this whole kind of commissioning of Timothy. He says, Timothy, I started the church in Ephesus. I preached in Ephesus every day, seven days a week for three years in a row. He said, Timothy, you now are in charge of that church. Here you go, buddy. It's up to you. I'm passing it to you. I need you to stay focused. I need you to be encouraged. I need you to remember that even if it gets difficult, you don't stop doing what's important. And so he's writing this personal letter and he's going to wrap up all of these things as he begins to talk about, hey, Timothy, it's up to you. I'm facing the end of my life. Paul doesn't anticipate, you know, retirement on the Mediterranean someplace. He anticipates that this is the end for him. So we're in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. All right, you got it? You ready? Here we go. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. So it's kind of poetic language, but you understand what he's saying. It's an Old Testament picture. They would take certain kinds of liquids and they would pour them over top of the altar. It was poured out. It was gone. You couldn't reclaim it. He's also talking about the fact that my departure has come. He understands he's going to die, right? We, we get the picture. We understand the words he's being used. He says, I have fought a good fight. 
I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all of those who have loved his appearing. So do your best to come to me soon. Because Demas, who is in love with this present world, has, de- has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus has gone to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in, for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, and also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. But you should beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but everyone deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood with me, and he strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all of the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth, that reference to the Colosseum. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesephorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, in Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you. So does Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. So lots of stuff there, right? Lots of personal things, lots of personal references, and again, references to all these people, and get my coat and bring the books, and there's just a lot of things in here that are, that are very significant between Paul and Timothy that you and I kind of just have this ability to, to peek into. I, I, I heard one guy say, reading 2 Timothy is kind of like reading somebody else's mail. It's, it's almost like, wow, it's a little personal. I'm, I'm not sure I should be reading this, and this wasn't, this wasn't addressed to me. There's uh, things that, that people can grab out of there that are important. One of the things that quite often gets talked about as people look at this portion of Scripture is where he says, I need you to bring Mark. Go find Mark and bring him with me. And you remember that story. Paul and Barnabas were the first two, first two missionaries to the Gentiles. They were sent out on a missionary journey. Barnabas says, hey, let's bring this, this nephew of mine, John Mark. Let's bring him with us. And so John Mark comes with him. It starts to get tough on the island of Crete, and John Mark says, I'm going home. That's tough. I'm out of here. He bails, goes home to Mama. They get back from their first missionary journey. A few months later, they're ready to head out on the second journey, and Barnabas again says to Paul, hey, good, this is an opportunity for us to go out again. Let's go, let's go get John Mark. Let's bring him with us again. And Paul's going, I'm not bringing that guy. Are you kidding me? The last thing I need when I'm out here trying to preach the gospel, trying to start churches, trying to deal with paganism and trying to deal with hypocrites in the synagogue and getting thrown in jail, the last thing I need is some guy I got to babysit and take care of. Let's just leave John Mark at home. He can grow up. And Paul and Barnabas split up over that. And Barnabas takes John Mark and he goes one way. Paul hooks up with a man by the name of Silas and they go the other. And now here at the end of his life is Paul reconciling with Mark and saying, Timothy, you need, to, you need to bring John Mark with you. You need to bring that guy with you. So it's wonderful to see that reconciliation. It's wonderful to see that forgiveness. And Mark turns out to be a pretty important guy in all of this, right? He writes the gospel of Mark. It's that same guy. 
And so it's interesting to see that, and I think it's, it's worth noting, and we shouldn't just skip over that. Other people like to track down the references to all the guys that are named in here, right? Well, the guys and gals, there's women on the list too. All the persons, all the personages that are, that are mentioned in here. The people love to do that because some of them are, like I say, well, John Mark, we have a little bit of his story. We have some idea. There's even a hint in the Gospels that he might have been the young man that was in the garden that got run off by the, the soldiers. So, I mean, it, it's kind of fun, you know, if you're kind of scholastic and you like to do that kind of stuff, you can kind of trace all these names and do all the rest of that stuff. And, and you do learn some interesting things. I mean, you, you find out about the fact that, that Luke is incredibly loyal. I mean, Luke is the guy that's been traveling with Paul now for some time, and he's recording all the events. That's where we get the book of Acts. And here is Luke. He says, Luke's the only guy that's still with me. You see about Demas's distractions. D- Demas is mentioned in some other place, and they, they, they talk about the fact that, hey, he's, he's, he's part of the team, and he's doing all these things. And Paul said, oh, I got all distracted. He lost his focus. He's wandered off. Onesephorus, he's, he's mentioned a couple of times, and we hear about his kindness and about his charity. I mean, so, so it's, 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 great to, it's great to catch all of these things. It's also interesting to note that uh, the Apostle Paul didn't live just a charmed life. He talks about the fact that one of his good friends, Trophimus, was someone that he had prayed for who was not healed, and he had to leave him in Miletus because of his illness. Not everything just magically happened for Paul, even when he prayed. It didn't all just click for him. There was difficulty and struggle in life. And so you can see all of those things, and and you can understand all of that. But I think it's in the personal references. When he begins to reflect back on his life, that's where we really catch the most. So I need to tell you that at the end of the service, there's going to be a little quiz. Okay? It's going to be three questions. It's going to be a short little quiz. You need to get it right, because you can't leave unless you pass. Okay? So you have, to, you have to stay for after church. You know, it's, it's kind of like detention. So you have to stay for after church if you don't pass the quiz. So there's going to be three questions at the end. They're going to be based on the things that Paul said. For those of you that are home, you can't eat lunch until you pass. Uh, according to District 7, uh, passing grade is 60% or higher. Uh, that's the COVID level. It used to be higher than that. But then COVID happened, and so suddenly you could pass at 60%. So that means you got to be one notch over, over half. So you got to get one right, you got to get half of the other question right, and then you can flunk the other question completely and you're all good. Okay, so there's three questions that are going to come up. little quiz at the end of the service. Just to kind of put that quiz into perspective, it is interesting to me that he ends this this portion of reflection by saying that God is going to deliver him from every evil deed and is going to bring him safely into his kingdom. Now, when you read that, you have to put that in perspective with what he just said, which is my life is being poured out like a drink offering, and I have, I have finished this course. I'm, my life is done. I am going to depart. He understands that his departure is not going to be because of old age. Paul understands he is going to be executed as a part of the testimony of his faith. So how do you reconcile, my life is poured out like a drink offering, I am about to depart, he understands that he's going to depart via execution for his faith, and then he turns around and immediately says, but God will deliver me from every evil deed and will safely deliver me into his kingdom. Because execution sounds like an evil deed. And he says, I'm going to be delivered from that. I'm going to be delivered from that. 
Paul has this amazing perspective in this situation and in this moment that has to do with heaven. And I know we've been talking all the way through in this study of this letter about perspective, perspective, perspective. How do you see things? How do you understand things? How are you responding to things? Yes, there are going to be difficult times, but God is faithful, and you need to show your faithfulness in the middle of all. I mean, I, I feel like I've probably dented that bell. I've hit it so many times. And yet here we are again, coming back to this issue of perspective. Paul does not perceive that deliverance from every evil deed means that he's going to get a not guilty plea and he's going to be pardoned and he's going to be gone. He doesn't anticipate that at all. He does, in fact, believe that he is going to be martyred for his faith. Paul understands deliverance as being able to go to heaven. He does not understand it in the sense that he is going to not have any difficulties, that nothing bad's ever going to happen, that he's not going to have anything inconvenient. He understands his deliverance as the, the opportunity to go to heaven. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, he writes in another place. And he begins to understand that. He is going to join the great cloud of witnesses that are described in Hebrews. He understands that heaven is the place to go. And it is interesting to me how, how many times it seems we kind of diminish the whole concept of heaven. That we kind of make it sound like, wow, man, I don't want to go there. I hope God delivers me one more time. And it's kind of like, I hope God lets me go to heaven on the first bus out of here. I mean, it's like, come on. The earlier we get there, the more we get to rejoice. And Paul understands that, that he's headed toward heaven. And, and he's not going to just get there as a place to exist, but he's understanding going to heaven as a place where he is going to experience reward. And this is another thing that I think we've lost that we need to re recapture. First of all, we need to get that eternal perspective that says, I really am going to heaven, and heaven's a really cool place, and it's really not a bad thing to get there. Even if I get there early, it's not bad. It's a good place to be. I mean, read the descriptions of heaven. It's pretty amazing. I'm really looking forward to the trees that grow next to the river of life that flows out from under the throne of God in heaven because it says that those trees give fruit every month and a different kind of fruit every month. Now, I'm thinking it's probably going to be pretty tasty stuff, and it's going to be different every month. I mean, I'm just thinking, how cool is that? I've never seen a tree like that. I mean, I've seen trees that don't give fruit every year. You know, it's like, what's the matter with that tree? We didn't get anything this year. I've seen that. I've never seen a tree that say, well, you know, we're done with peaches. The plums are coming. You know, I mean, I, I've never seen one that does that. I mean, heaven's just this incredible place. And it's not streets of gold. I hate to tell you. It's not streets of gold. Read it. It says it looks like gold, but it was clear as glass. Paul or John is obviously describing something he's never seen on this planet. And he's going, I don't know. I looked at it. It looked gold, but you could see through it. It was crazy. And that's what they make the streets out of. I'm just thinking it's a pretty cool place to be. And Paul's got that. But he also understands that when he gets there, there is a reward that's involved. He speaks of this reward that is waiting for him in heaven. And somehow we've kind of got the idea that you shouldn't ever do anything for a reward. It should always just be kind of this altruistic thing. Well, I'm just going to be a Christian because it's just the right thing to do. Well, let's face it, sometimes being a Christian is a hard thing to do. <laughs> it's not always easy to do the right thing, right? We talked about that before. It's always easy to know what the right thing is. It's hard to do the right thing, and sometimes it's tough. And Paul's going, you know what? I've put up with some stuff. I've gone through some difficulties, but you know what? I've got a reward. 
There is stored up for me a crown of righteousness, which he said the Lord will give not only to him, but to all of those who love his appearing. He says, I've, I've got a reward in mind here. I'm doing this because there's something good for me on the end of this thing. He says, I'm looking for that crown of righteousness. And he's saying it's available to each one of us. He said, the thing is, you have to look forward to, you have to love, you have to be excited about, encouraged, be focused on the return of the Lord. So I'll just kind of throw this out. This isn't one of the three questions that's going to come at the end, but it is just a free question that I'm just going to throw in on the side. Aren't you glad you came today? You get an extra question for free. Are you loving the appearing of Jesus or are you hoping for blessings here? Are you loving the appearing of Jesus or are you looking for blessings here? See, it's one thing to say, oh God, you got to bless me by Tuesday. It's another thing to say, oh God, it'd be great if you came on Tuesday. Those are just two different perspectives. And to say, God, I am looking forward to your coming. I am looking forward to the end of this age and the beginning of the next. I am looking forward to things being different than they are. I don't want to stay here forever. I don't want to live forever. That's not what I have in mind. I'm not even all that excited about what blessings I might accumulate. I really would like to have a crown of righteousness when I get to heaven. I don't want to be the only guy wandering around without a hat on up there. I'd like to be part of the group. I'd like to be involved in this thing. God, I'm looking forward to you coming. Are you looking forward to his return? Or are you looking for blessings now? Paul has a very eternal perspective. And I need you to know he didn't just get that because he knows the trial's coming up. This is not some jailhouse conversion. This is a real thing for Paul. From the very beginning, that day he met Jesus on the Damascus Road, he spent three days in prayer, blind, before Ananias came and prayed for him. And when God sent Ananias, he said, Ananias, I need you to know that Paul has been shown all the things that he must suffer for my name. Paul was in this thing for the reward. He was in this thing for the eternal. He was in this thing for the long haul from the beginning. And he's saying, Timothy, I'm there. I'm there. I've done what I'm supposed to do. And there is a crown of righteousness. There is heaven waiting for me. That's where I'm headed. That's what I'm looking for. So how does, he, how does he sum up his life? I'm going to tell you, these three things, I think, work for all of us. So some of you that are young and are trying to figure out what your life is going to be, these are three good ways to say, am I on course? If I pursue this path... At the end of my life, will I be able to say these three things? For some of you that are young enough, you can make some mid-course adjustments. This is a good way to evaluate and go, am I on track here? Am I headed in the right direction? And for some of you that don't have a lot of time left to make some course adjustments, it is an opportunity to reflect, but it's also an opportunity to say, with the strength and the energy that I have left, I'm going to invest it in this direction because this is what's important. So here's how Paul summarizes his life. He says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished the course or the race, and I have kept the faith. I have fought a good fight. Some people see that as an endorsement just to be cantankerous. Oh, Paul fought a good fight. I'm going to fight a good fight. I have a good cause. My cause is just. My opinion is correct. I should be treated this way. Nobody should be allowed to get away with that. I'm going to fight a good fight. <laughs> 
Paul is not encouraging you to be cantankerous. <laughs> Look at what Paul says to the Corinthians about being cantankerous. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, he says, when one of you has, an, has a grievance against another, See, he doesn't say whether you're right or wrong. He just says, if one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of going to the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? We saw that same perspective earlier in this letter. Where Paul's going, don't fight about words and quarrel about stuff. This is just trivia. It doesn't matter. We're here for eternal things. This is what matters. And he brings the same concept to these people. He says, do you not know that we're going to judge angels? How much more then matters that pertain to this life, these trivial things? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between two brothers? But brother goes to court against the other brother, and that before unbelievers. You have lawsuits at all with one another. You're already defeated. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, you wrong your brothers. He uses that word defrauded. Do you, you understand that word? Do you understand the concept there? It means something is owed to you by someone. This is not just a grudge. It's not just, well, I think you were mean to me. You, should, you owe me an apology. It's, it's way beyond that. This is some sort of contractual agreement. This is some sort of, wait a minute, you took the car, you're supposed to give me the check, and your check bounced. I mean, it's, it's that level of, of, of exchange. And Paul's going... First of all, the fact that you can't just settle this, you can't sit down like honest brothers in Christ and deal with this issue means that you're already defeated. And if that wasn't bad enough, now you're taking your, your silly issue and you've hauled each other off to court and you're asking pagans to settle it for you. He said, you guys are so messed up. He says, wouldn't it be better? Wouldn't it be better to actually be defrauded, to be cheated out of what you owe than to be contentious. So when Paul's talking about fighting a good fight, he's not just talking about, well, I have a cause, and by golly, my cause is a great one. I'm going to be angry and upset about it. He's not calling you to do that. That's not what fighting the good fight is all about. Good fight is not based on the fact that you think you're right. The good fight is not based on the fact that you are right. It's not based on the fact that you think someone owes you something. A good fight isn't even based on winning. A good fight is contending for eternal things in a place surrounded by people who are consumed with petty pursuits and offenses and desires. Paul is saying that he has lived a life of putting away silliness in favor of seriousness. He has contended for the eternal in a temporary culture and in a temporary setting. No matter what's happened around him, he said, I know why I'm here, and I'm here to tell people about the gospel, and the consequences don't matter. I will fight that fight. I will die fighting it if necessary. There's this great story that happens in Ephesus. You can read about it in the book of Acts. So Paul's been in Ephesus, and this is where Timothy is currently residing. 
He's been in Ephesus and he's been talking about God. Well, Ephesus, among the other things, had a tourist trade. And the tourist trade was based on the fact that the goddess Artemis, the, the image of the goddess Artemis had apparently fallen out of the heavens and landed in the city. Actually, what they did was they made an image, and then they said that's where it came from. But anyway, so there's this great big giant image in the city of Ephesus, and if you were going, you know, on a little, you know, princess cruise, and you stopped at Ephesus, you could go into town, and there you could go, and you could find they'd made little silver statues of the big statue that was in town, and they would sell the little silver statues to all the tourists. So they just had this great business going. So then Paul comes along and says, hey, you know the God that created heaven and earth? Yeah, you can't carve an image of him. <laughs> Nobody's ever seen him. He doesn't have a physical body the way we do. He dwells as pure light or pure energy. So you're not going to be able to do that. And so Paul starts talking about the real God. Well, when you start talking about a real God that you can't carve any images of, it begins to cut into your trade when your whole trade is making little images of God and selling it to all the tourists. And so all the silversmiths get together and they, just, they start this huge riot. And they gather together in the amphitheater, and, and you can see it today. Well, actually, if you go to the city of Ephesus today, there's two amphitheaters. I always imagine it's in the big one because the capacity is like 12,000 people or something in this huge outdoor amphitheater. Absolutely amazing, carved and all marble rock. And you should go sometime. Anyway, incredible deal. I can just, they're, they're, for hours, they're, they're, they're shouting in unison, great is Artemis, the god of the Ephesians, great is Artemis, the god of the Ephesians. There's a big riot thing going on, and people are going nuts. And Paul's going, a crowd, I could preach the gospel. They said they literally had to restrain him. They're going, Paul, you go down there, you're going to get killed. I mean, the guys that did go got beat up, <laughs> but you know, it, Paul's just going, man, I've got, I'll fight the good fight. I'm called to preach the gospel. There's thousands of people down there. I don't care why they're there. I just have a crowd. I'm going to go preach. Off he goes. When Paul's talking about fighting a good fight, he's saying, I'm going to do what is eternal. I'm going to do what matters. I'm going to do it every day, every opportunity. And I really don't care about the consequences. And I really don't care about the setting or the circumstances. I'm going to go. I fought good fight. Then he says, I finished the race. Paul is literally, in some senses, handing the baton off to Timothy. As I said, Paul preached for three years in the city of Ephesus. Every day, three years, he starts the church. He's now left. He's saying, Timothy, you're in charge of this church in Ephesus. Buddy, it's up to you. Yours. You go. Take it. You go. That's a big part of why this letter is written and the, and the, the tone and the spirit that it comes from. He is handing that baton because he's on his way to heaven. The things that God told him he needed to do, the things that he was going to suffer for, he said, man, I've done those things. I finished that. I have, I have fought the good fight, and I have finished the race. I, I, I would remind you that the baton exchange on a, on, a, on a relay race has to happen inside what's, what's you know, the, the, the transition zone or the handoff zone. So are you familiar with track? Do you, do you run you run track? Watch the Olympics on TV? Anybody? No? Okay, so like four of you. That's good. Okay, so they got that big round thing, and it's got lines painted on it, and then people run around in, on those lines. Yeah, okay, so that's the track, and you got the runners on the track, and you got to stay between the lines. On a relay race, you don't, at least on the short relay, on the long relay, you can cut off after the second hand, or after the first handoff, but everybody else has got to stay in line. So on the short relays, which are the most exciting ones in some ways, I think, you have to stay in your lane, but then there's the exchange zone, 
right? So if you're the first runner and you're coming and you got the baton and you're coming up, there's a line painted in the ground. You cannot hand off the baton until you are committed to the exchange zone. You have to be in the zone to be able to hand off the baton, okay? The person you're handing the baton to, they have to reach back and receive the baton before they cross a line that's in front of them, because if they are outside that exchange zone, you're disqualified. So you have to stay in your lane. I have fought a good fight. I stayed in my lane. You have, to, you have to stay in your lane, and you have to be in the exchange zone when you hand off. And the idea is that both runners are running full speed when the exchange takes place. You don't want to run up on the guy in front and have him have to get going again after he gets the baton. Nor do you want to be doing one of these things where he takes off too fast and you're gasping and trying to get it to him and he's out ahead of you. You want those two runners to meet at exactly the same time running full speed. That's where relay races are won or lost. And he's saying, wait a minute, I've run my race. I am in the exchange zone. I'm still moving. I'm still going. I'm not dead yet. I'm still going. I'm still going full speed. Timothy, I need you to get going full speed because I'm going to hand this baton to you. This exchange has got to take place. So let me ask you a question just kind of based on both sides of that. Have you died before you're dead? Have you died before you're dead? I knew a guy that did that. Died way before he was dead. Wasn't here. You wouldn't know him. It's a long time ago, someplace far, far away, in a galaxy far, far away, long, long ago. Yes, that's where it was. His wife had died a couple of years earlier, and that kind of brought a whole series of emotional issues and depression in his life, and I get that. Losing a spouse is a big deal. But he became depressed about that. Then he had some physical issues, you know, <laughs> You know, bless God, you live long enough, you get up in the morning and you're sore and you don't know why. I mean, it just, it's just one of those things that happens. It's, it's the joy of living long and having birthdays. You know, you just, it just happens. So he started to have some of that stuff go on. And so now he's depressed about the fact that his wife left. And now he's depressed about the fact that he doesn't feel good. And so he literally, he checks himself into a care facility, lays down on the bed and waits to die. The problem is, is that his body wasn't done yet. His life wasn't over. So now he's depressed about the fact that he's not dying the way he was supposed to. I mean, it just wasn't working for him. <laughs> so one, one, of, one of the things you're not supposed to do is to give up on the race before you finish running your course. Paul said, I finished the race. So I just got to ask you, some of you, have you, have you just kind of laid down in the track and said, Man, I'm really tired. Could you come back and get this baton? I, you know, I... I mean, I know I haven't got to the line yet, you know, and I haven't finished my part, but if you could just come back here, there you go. I, I'm, I'm really tired. It, it, could, you just, could you just take this? That's not finishing the race. That's dying before you're dead. But I'll tell you another thing that you're not supposed to do, and that is you're not supposed to shove the guy in front of you off the track and say, hey, I'm still good, man. I'm still good. I'm going. <laughs> Because you are supposed to still be good. You are supposed to be going. You're not supposed to run out of gas 25 yards before you get to the exchange box. <laughs> I made it. You're supposed to be going full speed when you hand off the baton, which means you still have capacity to run. You're just handing it off to somebody else. 
Paul was not old and feeble. He hadn't developed Alzheimer's. Paul was still sharp-minded. He was still energetic. He was still ready to preach the gospel. In fact, he's saying, hey, I got delivered out of that trial the last time, and all the Gentiles in Rome have heard the fact that I'm here for the gospel. He's still going. But he's handing off at full speed to Timothy. You're not supposed to shove the other guy out of the way. You're supposed to make room for him. You're supposed to say, hey, it's your turn. And now you become the coach and the encourager. You become the guy that's going, come on, run, run, run. I've seen it so many times in relay races, especially in the 400. The guy that makes the first leg, as soon as he hands off, he jets across the infield, and he's back over at the finish line cheering for the number four runner as he's coming in. He didn't die out there on the track. He still had strength, but now he's an encourager. He's handed the baton to somebody else. Have you died before you're dead? Or are you trying to shove the other person out of the way when it's their turn to run? He said, I finished the race. And then he said, I've kept the faith. I've kept the faith. You know, there's been a lot of things that have happened in Paul's life. He describes it this way to the Corinthians. He said, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Do you remember the concept was that if you hit the person with the lash 40 times, you'd kill them? So you just hit them 39 times so that you stay alive. He said, I, that only happened to me five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. That doesn't sound very pleasant either. He says, once I was stoned. And they literally, they came up and checked him. No pulse, he's dead. They, and then the disciples gathered around him and suddenly he's alive. I, I think God resurrected him. That's my take on that story. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I spent adrift at sea. That doesn't mean he was on a boat adrift. It means the ship broke up and he's swimming out in the ocean. I've been on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city and in danger in the wilderness, in danger at sea and in danger from false brothers, in toil and in hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, cold, facing exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. For who is weak and I am not weak, and who is made to fall and I do not feel indignant. A lot has happened to Paul. And his encouragement to the Thessalonians is interesting here. He says, I do not want you to grow weary in doing good things. You know it's possible to get exhausted doing good things? <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice if you were doing good things, your energy just never went away? And then you did bad things, your energy went away, and you went, oh, I shouldn't be doing that. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> I just got to tell you, you're going to get tired either way. I'm starting to find out that I can put in a full day's work in less than a full day. <laughs> just, it's one of the joys of having birthdays. <laughs> it's like, oh, noon, yeah, time to knock off. <laughs> I'm exhausted. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you can get tired doing good things. And Paul's saying, don't grow weary in well-doing. Don't lose your perspective. Don't lose your attitude. Don't grow weary in doing good. And look at all of the stuff that's happened to him. I got to tell you, when Paul got up in the morning, it hurt. You cannot have experienced all of that stuff without having an incredible amount of arthritis. I mean, it's just, it's a reality. He has been so beat up. He's got to feel it. And I will tell you that this life that he describes, that he and Timothy have shared together, and that he's calling Timothy to, this life of service to other people, I will tell you that at times it can be a difficult life. 
And like Paul, you can experience abuse at the hands of the broken who are going, how come my life didn't magically get better? It's your fault. You can experience abuse at the hands of the self-righteous. Don't you love those people that are just better and smarter and more together than all the rest of us? They, they wonder what our problem is. You can suffer abuse at the broke, hands of the broken or the self-righteous. It's a life where you can clearly experience the adage that says, no good deed goes unpunished. You, know? <laughs> you ever do that? You, know, you felt like you were just trying so hard, you're just trying to do the right thing, and it's, all you get for it is criticism. I can tell you that a life that is spent resisting the work of the devil is a life that is spiritually, mentally, and physically exhausting. And I can tell you that the hurt, the abandonment, the betrayal, and the struggle can make you more than tired. It can make you cynical. But I will also tell you, it is absolutely the greatest way to live. It is absolutely the best thing you can ever give your life to. Because the victories that you see when people get delivered and when they choose maturity over selfishness is absolutely amazing. I wrote this sermon some weeks ago now, and I was writing it on a Friday morning. It was just after chip night. So for those of you that have never been with us to celebrate recovery on Thursday nights, chip night is what we do on the first night of the week, or the first uh, Thursday night of the month, I mean. And uh, it, it, it's not that we give out Lay's potato chips. It's not that kind of chips. You get, you get these little, little plastic or, or, well, we call them metal, but I think they're just plastic that painted to look like metal. But anyway, we give, we give these chips, and it's, it's for, for milestones, for accomplishments, for things that you're celebrating, and then also things that you want to begin. And so people will come up, and you know, they'll say, hey, you know, I, got, I got two years that I, I made a change in my, my whole eating habits. I, I just used to you know, literally eat chips, and now I don't, and I got, I got a better diet now, and it's been two years, and I'm, I've, you know, dropped weight, and I'm feeling healthy, and I'm, I'm just really glad that I made that decision. I'm celebrating that, or I got 90 days clean and sober off meth, or whatever it is, and so we go through, and we celebrate all these things with these chips, but at the end, we circle back around, and we say, what is it that you want to start? Because some of you have made some milestones, you've accomplished some things, but some of you have some things you need to begin. And I, this particular night, the night before I was writing this sermon, there was a person who had gotten up, and I, I, I cannot remember how long it was, but it had to do with some sobriety issues, and they had like a year or something that they had been clean and sober. And so they were celebrating that, and we celebrated with them. And at the end, when we came back around, this same person got back up, and with tears in their eyes, this person began to say, you know, I've, I've come to acknowledge the fact that my lack of sobriety had a great impact on my children. And I need to start being a better parent. So I, I, I have to tell you, in that moment, any of the weariness or the cynicism that comes from the criticisms and from the opinions of others and the demands from other people, and all the things that would cause you to kind of lose your perspective and grow weary in well-doing. I have to tell you, in that moment, it just all vanished for me. And I went, that's why I do what I do. That's why I get up in the morning. That's why I take the chances. That's why I put up with the stuff that I put up with, is to see that happen, that life change right there, not where that person just decides to get sober, but when they recognize how their sobriety or their lack of that sobriety has affected and hurt other people, and they're owning that, and they're taking responsibility for that, and they're going to make not only their life better, but they're going to become a positive influence on the people around them. That's what it's all about. 
That's why I get up in the morning. That's the moment when I remembered why I live the life that I live, why I do what I do, why I get up in the morning and clean myself up and head out into the community. At that moment, no, no cynicism over the people that you tried to help in the past and they failed by their own choices and then blame it on you. Uh, in that moment, keeping the faith, fighting the good fight and finishing the race became worth it all. So here's the quiz. You ready for the quiz? 60%. You got to score 60% or you have to stay for church detention? So here's the first question. Are you fighting a good fight or are you just fighting? Are you fighting a good fight or are you just fighting? You don't get to be cantankerous in Jesus' name and call it a good fight. It's not a good fight. Are you fighting for eternal things in the light of temporary things? When all the people around you can't see past Tuesday, do you have your eye on heaven? And are you fighting for that? Are you fighting a good fight or are you just fighting? And not is your cause just, but is your cause worth it? I heard someone say that if there's, not, if there's nothing in your life worth dying for, there's nothing in your life worth living for. What in your life is worth dying for? Because if there's nothing worth dying for, there's nothing worth living for. Make your life count. Are you fighting a good fight? Are you on the course to finish the race, or have you sat down in the middle of the track or tried to force the other runner off? Are you running your race? Are you running your race? You need to finish your course. And when you're done, you need to cheer on the people that are going to carry it on for you. The military gets that. They have a phrase for it, up or out. Up or out. You're either moving up or you're moving out. Get your career on track. But it does require that the guy at the top retire. Because if the guy at the top never moves, there's no place for the other guys to move up. So if the CNO of the Navy doesn't retire, that's why he can only be the CNO for two years. And he has to move on. They've made two exceptions to that. You have to move on. Why? Because you've got a fleet admiral, either in the Pacific or the Atlantic, who's saying, my next move is CNO. And if you don't get out of there, I can't move up. And if I can't move up, I've got to get out. So you need to move. <laughs> they understand that. Because there's, there's a carrier fleet admiral someplace. And he's trying to move up to fleet admiral, and he can't move up to fleet admiral if the fleet admiral doesn't move up to CNO, and he can't be the CNO if the CNO doesn't get out. There's a baton to be passed. So don't die in the track and make the rest of us come back and get the baton. Run the race. Do what you've got the strength and the power to do. But when your turn is over, hand it off. Are you on course to finish the race? And have you kept the faith? Or have you become jaded and cynical and regardless of how justified you feel about your bad attitude, and regardless of how anybody else has behaved around you, have you kept the faith? Because I guarantee you, if you want to have a bad attitude, there's always somebody you can blame it on. Absolutely. Well, I'm not normally like this, but they went and... I mean, there's always, right? There's always somebody you can point at. Where it's like, you know, I'm, I'm normally a pretty good guy, you know, but I just lost it because of that guy over there. And if you want to have a bad attitude and do stupid things, there's always somebody you can blame it on. Paul said, I didn't, I didn't lose my perspective. And no matter how bad it got, no matter how bad it got, I've kept the faith. So how'd you do on your quiz? 
Oh, he aced it. <laughs> Can we get a second opinion on that? <laughs> uh, and as I said, for some of you that are younger, I would, just, I, would, I would just challenge you to post those questions up in front of you and go, you know, when I get to the end of my life, am I going to be able to answer those three questions and say, yep, I did that? Has my life been worth living? Have I made a difference? Have I done something for eternity while I was on this planet? Is anything different because I was here? Fought a good fight. Finished the race. Thanks. And you have kept the faith. Have you done those things? So, Father, we're just going to ask for your help. Because, God, it is so easy for us to get distracted. And we will just confess that to you. We get distracted so easy. And pretty soon we're not in our lane anymore and we're over in somebody else's lane and we're complaining about what's going on over there and, uh, and we're disqualified from the race. And we don't fight good fights, we just get mad about stuff. Well, I don't like that and it's not convenient for me. And rah, 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 rah. It's got nothing to do with eternity. God, would you help us have a clear eye on heaven, eternity, the reward, what matters, what counts, what's worth living for because it's worth dying for. Help us, God, to have that clear focus so that we can keep the faith all the way to the end. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 All right, go fight a good fight. Finish the race. Keep the faith.